You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 30th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Erdogan is desperate about this, and this isn't rhetoric. The economy is going terribly badly, and he really does want help. And he has to seek help where he can get it. And he doesn't like Syria any more this year than he did eight years ago, the regime of Assad, but he has to go to Putin. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has justified his incursion into Syria as a way of repatriating over three million Syrian refugees. Should the EU expect him to bear the burden? My guests Robert Fox and Mary Dijewski will discuss that and the day's other news, including as Russia's propaganda machine amps up in Africa, are Western governments missing a trick? And Essex Man evolves. We ask if demographic stereotyping is essential to political campaigning. Plus... Reforms now being touted centre on strengthening the FAA and creating a new branch dedicated to studying flight automation. This will quite rightly make the process of getting new planes into the air in the US lengthier and costlier. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Mary Dijewski, writer for The Independent and The Guardian, and Robert Fox, defence editor for The Evening Standard. Welcome both. We will start with the knotty question of how, when and whether it is permissible or helpful for countries to instruct other countries in how to manage their domestic issues, even or especially when those domestic issues have international resonances. Turkey is currently on the receiving end of a great deal of criticism for its incursion into Syria, with the alleged ambition of repatriating Syrian refugees. In Brazil, President Jair Bolsonaro has been the recipient of much unsolicited counsel regarding forest management. But does any of this help? Um, Mary, does the do-as-I-say-and-not-as-I-do tactic ever get us anywhere? Well, I mean, personally, I'm a complete, as it were, non-interventionist, including verbal intervention, because I think it does often more harm than good. But of course, everybody who's been dispensing the advice is not actually playing in the first instance to those particular countries. They're playing to the home audience. And to that extent, they sort of have to say what they're saying. Um, But of course, if you're sitting in Turkey and you're Erdogan looking at three and a half million um, Syrian refugees and the fact that the conflict in Syria has actually been winding down and is now much more circumscribed, limited geographically than it was before. Um, And if you're Bolsonaro and you're looking at your acres and acres of forests and outsiders are telling you what to do with them and you think well um, maybe we have the right to a certain amount of development that these guys sitting there have already done and it's all very well for them to talk about climate change and forests and all the rest of it this Um, is china's common response as well sympathy for them Um, Robert, does it make a difference or would it make a difference if instead of don't do this, don't do that, the question put to countries like Turkey and Brazil was how can we help? Yeah, I think, and it will come to that in the case of Turkey on uh, Syria because um, they've gone about it in a very sort of Turkish Erdogan way, if I may put it like that, because they've got, um, they've wrapped up a civil war in what is a cruel and crucial um, humanitarian crisis. And they seem to be behaving rather badly in the civil war, but not not 
egregiously so by Turkish standards, um, in doing uh, a really a serious bit of, um, qualitatively speaking, e- ethnic cleansing against the Kurds because they're going through a Kurdish period, a bit of a Kurdish area with Kurds on both sides of the border. Too much detail. Looking at the refugees, though, on the whole, the Turkey, the Turks, the Turkish humanitarian agencies, and even the government have behaved really rather well and behaved much better than their so-called supporters and allies in NATO. They've had an enormous problem, as they keep on pointing out. It is thought to be now about 3.6 million uh, Syrian refugees on, on, the other, on the inside of the border, with large numbers going to the big cities like Istanbul. Um, Erdogan is desperate about this, and this isn't rhetoric. The economy is going terribly badly, and he really does want help. And he, uh, I've heard him uh, a year ago, I was at a press conference where, and he really, the stuff about Europe isn't feigned, it isn't made up. And he has to seek help where he can get it. And he doesn't like Syria any more this year than he did eight years ago, the regime of Assad, but he has to go to Putin. Uh, Mary, you characterised yourself in your previous answer as a non-interventionist, but does a question not arise when whatever problem country X is managing does have an international resonance? Because the, the, the health of the Amazon rainforests, for example, matters to absolutely all of us. Are other countries not entitled to a say in how it is managed? Well, I mean, with Bolsonaro, it's it's entirely fair to say that there was actually help offered. And he turned around and said, no, thanks, actually, I don't want your help. Exactly so. Um, So... But I do think that um, there are there is huge amounts of uh, of area and forest there, um, and the idea that what he is doing would catastrophically um, destroy the whole of that I just think that is rather exaggerated, and I think that um, it would actually he whether he would actually did, we we go on about how he would is proposing to destroy his forests and catapult climate change for the rest of us. Um, And I just think that is not realistic, Um, just as I think that it's not realistic to tell Turkey what it should do. What we have done um, by, to an extent, intervening with Turkey on on the refugees and the the arrangement um, that Turkey reached with Germany and Merkel that was brokered by Merkel, um, Turkey has largely kept to that. But what it's done is give Turkey a degree of leverage which it would not have had before and this is why Turkey can turn around um, when we make all sorts of recommendations and warnings and um, dire threats of what we would do if Turkey misbehaves, it can turn around and say, well, actually, um, we can um, turn on the tap again and all these refugees will be your problem because they'll be coming across Europe. Very difficult to manage. Actually, technically, it's quite difficult to see how they would do it. It will be it will be a scatter. Um, back on your point about the Amazon, I'm not for burning down the forest, but what we are hearing in this conversation and offering the money to Bolsonaro, an awful lot of grandstanding. Um, it's the flavour of the month. Uh, Mark Carney, the outgoing um, 
uh, governor of the Bank of England, who was going for a big office. Well, he's missed out on the IMF, but he's, he's looking for something like that. Says, ah, oh, climate change is number one, number two priority. Uh, Christine Lagarde, going to the uh, European Central Bank, says the same. But when you say, great, and it is a problem, we do have to think about it, now what? Dot, dot, dot. Even the um, climate change panel the writing about it is so obscure and so confused. So they're hiring professional writers, but they're from schools of neurology. And things. So it is absolutely hopeless because one of the things in the climate change debate about the uh, Amazon forests, it must be said, that it transpired that the fires hadn't been as bad this year as they have been in previous years. And the thing that is far more worrying is the real game changer, which is no particular human agency's fault. It's actually lightning is the burning of the tundra, where in, 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 in going up towards the high Arctic in, in, in Russia, where you've got peat fires which will, which will burn for generations. Now, what I'm saying, and I agree with Mary, there's actually, the, it, this is cheap, cheapskate stuff, even from the climate change panel. There's got to be some really serious thought and there has to be cooperation. In a way, one can be irritated by Bolsonaro said, not on my patch. But in a way, he's looking after his constituents. And that wasn't taken into consideration. Mary Dijewski and Robert Fox, we will have more from you both in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Marcus Hippie has some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Lebanese soldiers and security officials have urged protesters to open blocked roads and return home. It follows two weeks of demonstrations which have paralysed the country and forced the resignation of Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri. He said he had hit a dead end in trying to resolve the political crisis. The UK will head to the polls in December for the first time in almost a century. The Conservative Party hopes the snap contest will provide them with a parliamentary majority and a clear mandate to push ahead with Brexit. But opposition leaders say that the election is an opportunity for a fresh start. Democrats in the House of Representatives have published a resolution that sets out the next stage in their attempt to impeach Donald Trump. The motion details a more public face of the inquiry and hands the lead role in hearings to Adam Schiff, who chairs the House Intelligence Committee. And the Monocle Minute reports on Singapore's ambitious plan to dramatically increase its use of solar energy by 2030. The move will enable the city-state to reduce its use of natural gas, oil and coal. If the goal is achieved, energy from the sun will meet the power needs of about 350,000 households in the Republic. Those are the headlines. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Marcus. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are Robert Fox and Mary Dijewski. Uh, we will move seamlessly along on the subject of countries generally unappreciative of unsolicited guidance and look at Russia, specifically what it is up to in Africa, which seems set to become the latest recipient of what Russia would doubtless prefer to call its informational outreach. Russia seems to be following China in taking a purely pragmatic view of Africa, investing and building rather than donating and lecturing. Might they be onto something? Well, I'm quite interested on the, um, the, the the emphasis that's being placed on what's seen as Russia's um, information outreach to Africa, because it seems to me that actually the information outreach is less significant in a way than Russia's 
other entirely material outreach to Africa. I mean, one of the reasons that we're looking at this now is because last week um, Putin hosted um, Russia-Africa summit in Sochi. And one of the extraordinary things about this was the turnout. The turnout was a complete representation of African leaders or representatives. More than 40 countries, which is 80% of African countries, sent their, their, their head of state or their prime minister. Now, you know, this is a huge diplomatic success for Putin. Wherever it goes from now, he managed to gather this number of African leaders together in one place talking to Russia. And I think that um, in some way that there are so many strands to this. I mean, one strand is obviously cocking a snook to Western countries and saying, look, we can do big scale diplomacy too now. We're not a country to be trifled with. It's a riposte to what Putin saw as Obama's um, slur on him talking about Russia as merely a regional power, which he took very badly. Um, and I think it's, um, it shows that um, Russia is now starting to be much more interested in the outside world. Of course, there's a China angle too here that Russia sees itself um, as maybe wanting a bit of a slice of markets and influence in Africa that China has largely um, cornered. So I think there's all those different strands to it. Um, the strands that I don't think it has to it, which some people have uh, have pointed out. I don't think there's any territorial ambition by Russia. Russia's got far too much territory of its own um, and more countries And a certain amount it. of other peoples at the moment as well. Well, that's, that, that, that is, but much closer to, uh, closer to Russia. So uh, territorial ambition, I think, is totally wrong. And also the idea of um, Russian mercenaries, which was sort of um, blown up into a huge great issue as though um, Putin was sending alternative armies to um, to Africa. Um, I, to the extent that that was happening at all, very locally, I understand that it's been clawed back quite a bit and this is not going to be the direction of um, any sort of Russian advance into Africa. Robert, there's a, there's a hugely different approach that we've seen to Africa from Russia and China who have taken a very transactional utilitarian view. It's like we will build things there and we will invest in things there because we think we can do well out of this and I'm sure they don't at least think it would be an altogether bad thing if Africa did well out of this as well, though I suspect this doesn't keep Moscow or Beijing awake at nights, whether Africa does well out of it or not. But how do you account for that difference in approach versus how, how the West has done? It still, I think, addresses Africa largely through the framework of aid and NGOs um, and attempting to promote good governance. In Russia's case, just listening to Mary, it's kitten credibility. They have shown in Syria and other places they have basic military equipment, which it, which works. It's practical. Mm. And it's not over-sophisticated. And they have the golden opportunity, frankly, and dip diplomatic, diplomatically speaking, of a crazy pre president in the White House. So Putin talks diplomacy, and, th and th th this goes forward from there. China is a different thing uh, in that... It's what I call, it's part of China's postmodern mercantilism. It's almost an 18th century view of the world that China's interest is in trade areas, investment areas. And although they don't 
put it that way, in places where countries like Sri Lanka have really uh, come unstuck on this, it is a client patronage system. They're quite prepared for the client to do well, as uh, as Mary and you, you you were saying. But it is very much part of the great unified uh, community that is China itself. And it's set by um, Xi Jinping's great, he, did, he didn't originate it, but it's his great project, is the Belt and Road Project, which is not just reconstituting the, 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 the Silk Road, which indeed they are, are doing, and this um, accounts for the irritation, the great problems they're having on their borders with the Uyghurs and so on, but it's maritime as well. Um, it's very odd. It is a mercantilist in that it is based on the great society of China, and it is, but it is not globalist in, 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 in a funny way. It is actually, not that they would use the phrase, China first. Mary, is it, however, opportunist in that is this a, an amount of Russia and China thinking, well, the West has done all this foundation work for us in, in promoting good governance and helping build economies in Africa, and now that they've basically spent thankless decades doing that, we can swoop in and clean up. <laughs> I'm not quite sure that it's opportunist in that sense. Um, but I think maybe it's opportunist in a slightly different sense, because what we haven't mentioned is that um, not just with China, but I would say especially with Russia, assistance or trade doesn't come with a human rights, civil rights, international, um, what do we call it, values agenda. Um, now, you know, we can all be cynical about this and say, well, of course, Russia wouldn't have a values agenda, would it? Um, but I think if you look at it from the Africa perspective, you see a country which would be seen in Africa as a European country and a European power, Russia, um, offering things on a transactional, on an exchange basis, um, but without the preaching. And that is awfully attractive. Uh, on that subject, Robert, is Europe, and I mean, you're quite right in alluding earlier to the fact that I suspect Donald Trump's interest in Africa is, is limited. Um, but does Europe in particular still make the mistake of regarding Africa as if it's a place which is somehow incapable of governing itself and still requires instruction and encouragement? Well, you do... And so many of the European powers um, have a colonialist leg legacy there, and that must be said, including Italy, which, which, which very we much to, including which, Italy, which we tend to forget about. And I agree with you entirely. It is a huge problem, and they see it in terms of old-fashioned uh, political geography. Because look at uh, the Francophonie, the, the, the specific interest of France uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and Mali, where they really are quite stuck. And there are the big problems blowing up now, and it's largely driven by demography and fractured economies in the Maghreb, the Western Maghreb, Tunisia, uh, Algeria particularly, which is going through a rough patch at the moment, and, and Morocco. But it's also something else that's going on, is that Europe, the EU, Europe, Mrs. Mogherini, uh, Solana before her, love to talk about the common foreign and security policy I must say, and I'm not a Brexiteer, I can't see much of it. It's still, look at Italy's problems with migration. It is actually individual countries having to go and look after themselves as they see it in their own terms. 
Okay, well, finally, uh, on today's news panel, as we were discussing at the top of the programme, the UK is now braced for what when one adds up referendums, EU and general elections will be its sixth rancorous and divisive vote in as many years. I think I've done the maths right there. Uh, Already, we have been invited to embrace a new demographic stereotype, Workington Man, who joins the pantheon of British cephalogical totems alongside Essex Man, Worcester Woman, Mondeo Man and Pebble Dash People, which I had thought that the band that that was the band that Francis Rossi was in before status quo. Um, Mary, do we understand who Workington Man even actually is? <laughs> well, I only understand because I listened to a very ponderous piece on the BBC this morning, um, which uh, explained it in uh, such elementary terms that I sort of couldn't fail to understand it as being um, somebody who would um, in the past have voted Labour, but because they have sort of certain um, Brexiteer instincts, um, they are unlikely to vote Labour next time around. Um, and they may vote for the Brexit Party if there's a Brexit Party candidate. But, um, of course, the Conservatives hope that they'll vote for them, so they see them as a potential um, promising um, target for their for, for their election propaganda. Um, but it didn't sound to me from the um, from the Workington man who was uh, interviewed this morning that he would be and, and voting I think Conservative. We, 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 should, <laughs> we should spare a thought at this point for the male population of Workington who are about to have the worst six weeks of their lives, I think. Yes. If I was that Workington man on the BBC... I heard the interview, I would have smacked the interviewer. <laughs> he was so patronising, so was the introducer. Yes. I think Workington Man actually indicates the huge problem that above all the broadcasters are in, in covering this election because they're going for one stereotype after another. And if I hear yet again it's all going to be won or lost on Facebook and WhatsApp, you know, that the thing is that you, I think there will be a completely... Un, there's an unpredictable element of just bloody-minded contrariness is going to come you, out of it. You look at all these, uh, yeah. all these sort of models of Mondeo man yeah. and what is it, Worcester woman and all yeah. the rest of it. I mean, I realised first of all I, that, I, that while I was familiar with the terms, I had absolutely no idea of what they designated in the past. Yeah. Um, so that's probably going to happen again. Um, and while they're all very convenient as sort of um, signalers, actually, when it comes down to it, I think the only one that really stood the test of time was probably um, Thatcher and Essex Mann of yeah. having moved people away from in her way from Labour to, this, this to this was, ownership, this, house ownership. Yeah, this, this was this idea that yeah. Thatcher had helped shift a, a bunch of the working class vote from Labour yeah. to um, the Conservatives. 92, I think, was the Essex Mann election and I can remember watching that one and basic, which no one thought... That's John Major. Which no one thought he was going to win, mm. but I can remember when the result came in from Basildon, yeah. uh, everybody just thinking, oh, well, that's it, the game's up. Basildon being very much in Essex, of course. Robert, you mentioned Facebook and WhatsApp and so forth, which will be where quite a lot of this election is fought. And given the amount of electioneering that now goes on online, um, I'm sure Workington Man does have a Facebook account, but does any of, do these stereotypes still help us in, in, a, in a, an electoral landscape which is now largely digital? No, it doesn't, because there is an observable phenomenon which is that we may have reached in this term, in this, in, in this phase, peak social media. Because as we know, with opinion polls, people are, can be really quite bloody-minded and conceal their intentions. I think they're going to conceal their intentions uh, on, on, on Facebook and on social media. The whole idea 
behind uh, Brexit and the Trump election was the persuadables. The problem with the persuadables, and there's another thing actually in broadcasting called the CNN curve, where you see a phenomenon which you hadn't thought of, and you say something must be done, so uh, politicians do things, they go and rescue the the curves and change their mind. CNN curve only works when there's a political vacuum. The persuadables can only be persuaded if they haven't really made up their mind beforehand. And I think an awful lot of people really have made up their mind. I think there's something else that's going to be extremely interesting about this election, though, um, which is that almost for the first time that I can remember, we've got the leaders of the two main parties, Jeremy Corbyn and Boris Johnson, who are very, very good campaigners. And they will both be out on the stump and live campaigning um, may actually um, enjoy a great resurgence this time around um, in a way that last time in the recent elections, it hasn't been because the, the, the as it were the campaigning gifts from have been very one-sided Robert Fox and Mary Dijewski, thank you both for joining us in a moment the future of aviation safety you're listening to Monocle's house view stay tuned This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, in our view from the editorial floor, we take a look at the latest steps in keeping us safe up there. Boeing CEO Dennis Muhlenberg will today face a second session of grilling by US lawmakers over company failings that led to two separate plane crashes and the deaths of 346 people. Under tough questioning yesterday, Muhlenberg admitted that America's aviation giant had made mistakes, but insisted it had learned from the accidents in Indonesia and Ethiopia that involved its now-grounded 737 MAX planes. Chief among the things he is expected to be asked about today is why a known deadly safety feature flaw was not disclosed to the relevant regulatory body, the Federal Aviation Administration. This is the first time a company official has publicly testified on Boeing's role in the tragedies, and much is riding on it, as the company is well aware. Yesterday, its website was replaced by a special memorial page, mourning those whose lives were lost, and a similar full-page advert was taken out in several US and British newspapers. Yet this transparent PR blitz has failed to obscure the massive problems facing Boeing. It expects the MAX to be cleared for flight by the end of this year, but that's now looking unlikely. Further delays may mean the entire plane has to be scrapped, a huge blow for the largest manufacturing exporter in the US, and a potential drag on the country's economy. Reforms now being touted centre on strengthening the FAA and creating a new branch dedicated to studying flight automation. This will quite rightly make the process of getting new planes into the air in the US lengthier and costlier. That may prove problematic for Boeing as it struggles to get back into the game, But in the long term, it's a positive development for the industry at large. That was The View from Monocle's editorial floor, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machalari and researched by Yolin Goffan and Will Higginbotham. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 